It's the 18th of October, 2019. This is the Room Now Podcast, and I am Dr. Jack Cush. Again, with the Room Now Podcast. This week, we're going to talk about the perils of joint injection. The real skinny on statins and shamefully low change rates for DMARDs in the face of disease activity. Yes, by the rheumatologist. We're going to start with a UK study of the risks associated with RA. This was, uh, I think, in the National Inpatient Sample Database in 2005-2014 that showed RA patients had a higher risk of MI. Not surprising. COPD should not be surprising. Should be very worrisome. CVA, renal disease. And the thing that really struck me here was a 2.7-fold increase in alcohol abuse. Now, these are RA patients who end up getting hospitalized. Not many of RA, RA patients do, but I would certainly recognize the risk of, R, of MI, CVA, uh, COPD, and even renal disease, given the drugs we use and the condition. But alcohol abuse is a bit surprising to me. The mortality trends were higher for those with CHF. AFib uh, stood out. So again, our RA patients do have comorbidities, cardiovascular but we do need to be aware of others, including renal and alcohol abuse. Similarly, a UK population uh, study compared the population to almost 7,000 incident RA patients and looked at comorbidity and its influence on all-cause mortality. Um, overall, the adjusted hazard ratio showed that if you had comorbidity, you had a 25 26% increase in mortality, whereas joint destruction, joint damage had no effect on mortality, Things like COPD had significantly higher, 2.84 higher rates of mortality in RA patients. What do rheumatologists love more than methotrexate? Talk about lab tests and, if any, ANAs. Well, there's a really nice review that you can find on, uh, referenced on the website on this particular podcast and we can review that looks at the value of ANA testing in auto, autoimmune disease overall. It's really quite nice. It shows you that in general, ANAs really have very low predictive value for autoimmune disease. We know that. Um, I tell my patients in room in the United States, there's 20 million Americans who have a positive ANA, but only 300,000 who actually have lupus. And those are epidemiologic data, not lupus foundation data on, on lupus, which really isn't actually accurate. They showed that the most predictive ANAs were ones with a centromeric pattern, predictive for systemic sclerosis, uh, and at a titer of 1 to 160 was 29% positive predictive value, higher at 1 to, uh, 1 to 320 at 42%, uh, and 77% predictive if the titer was 1 to, 1, 1 to 640 or greater, uh, and even 82% from 1 to 1280. Uh, they look at all the patterns and what they mean. The speckled pattern, as you might guess, was really poorly predictive with very low predictive value numbers, less than 20% until you got to like well, titers of 1 to 1280. There, the predictive value for autoimmune disease was 71%. Speaking about autoantibodies, what about the antiphospholipid antibodies and what it means to patients with lupus? Well, this particular study looked at 149 patients who had biopsy-proven lupus nephritis and looked at the association with antiphospholipid antibodies. Overall, 36% of those patients, or a third, had APL antibodies. 
um, 19% IgG, 18% IgM, 11% for glycoprotein uh, 1, and uh, 8% who had an LAC, 2% coagulant. When they followed these people for about, looks like 13, 14 years, the pa patients who are APL positive had a lower 10-year survival rate, 91% um, survival, whereas those who weren't APL positive had a 10-year survival rate of 99%. We're doing pretty good in either group, but you know, an 8% drop in survival associated with the APL antibodies means that it might mean something to you who are managing patients with lupus. Turns out that most of those, uh, that impact in survival was associated with lower GFRs, more thrombotic events, and miscarriages. Interesting data comes from the RISE registry. This is a prospective registry run by the ACR. It now has 7,200 RA patients, and they looked at the value of the uh, disease activity measures, RAPID-3, which many of you do, was done by almost 80% of you in this particular study, and the CDI done by 34% in the study. Turns out that when they looked at patients who had declared, physicians declared, moderate or high disease activity based on the RAPID-3 or CDI, the rate of DMAR changes was abysmally low, 36 to 55%. You are less likely to change DMARDs in the face of moderate or high disease in people who are elderly, people already on combos and already on uh, combinations with DMARDs. Uh, again, there's a lot of data like this that says for all of us who are measuring, we pay no attention to measuring because it sometimes takes up to a year a year of follow-up writing moderate to severe disease activity in the chart of a patient who has no DMAR change until six or 12 months. If you're doing measurements, look at them and tell, and then make a case for why you're not gonna change DMARs in people who have moderate or high disease activity by whatever measure you use, either a rapid three, a CDI, I use a gas score, it doesn't really matter, they all work. So when you're advising your patients about JAK inhibitors and the risk of hyperlipidemia, what do you say? I generally say 15 to 20% of patients will um, develop hyperlipidemia, all the lipids will go up, um, and uh, half of them might need to be on therapy. If you're already on a statin, you probably don't need, you probably won't develop this particular com, um, uh, uh, complication. Now, that's data drawn from the clinical trials in the package insert. You can reference that number if you like. But a nice study done, a uh, prospective study of real world patients treated with. Um, Tofacitinib for psoriatic arthritis, where maybe LDL, HDL is the same as RA, I think it is, finds that HDL and LDL were only increased in 14 or 9% respectively um, when patients were followed for up to six months. Turns out that patients who did have these increases in LDL or HDL really had no greater risk of hypertension or major coronary events, MACE events on follow-up. Now, short-term follow-up, but uh, there are a lot of studies now that have, been, that have looked at either registry studies or the INTRAC study, which compared patients who developed hyperlipidemia on an IL-6 inhibitor. And then there's reg uh, claims data showing hyperlipidemia on a JAK inhibitor compared to controls showing no higher rate of that hyperlipidemia with um, significant cardiovascular or cerebrovascular events in the long run. So who gets infection in lupus? Well, you can imagine sick the, the patients, patients who have um, a, a lot of activity by the measures that you usually do. Uh, a nice analysis looked at the comparison of lupus patients who had infection, uh, culture-proven infection, versus 69 patients who did not have a culture-proven infection, and they were matched appropriately. And they looked at the, lab, the utility of labs in predicting infection. Turns out that 
procalcitonin and S100 protein often advocated as being helpful in inflammatory states and maybe you know, the infection really did not distinguish patients who had infection from those who did not. But as you would expect, C-reactive protein was quite successful in identifying those who had serious infections in lupus and those who did not. Um, I have always been very concerned about the risk of infection in patients with dermatomyositis. Um, not often talked about, but when I look at the data, serious infectious event rates are really high in dermatomyositis. And that may be because of the strong dependence on high-dose steroids, especially at the outset, trying to find the right steroid-sparing drug and staying on steroids probably too long. Well, a Taiwanese claims-based study looked at the risk of opportunistic infections, not regular infections, in 77,000 autoimmune patients. And it turns out that they had maybe the highest that they saw was in dermatomyositis, polymyositis, that the OI event rates, which across the board, with most biologics you'll use, is about a 1 in 1,000 risk of an opportunistic infection. We're talking about, yes, maybe shingles, quite common, but things like nocardia and bizarro, uh, atypical mycobacterial fungal infections. The OI event rate with PMDM was 61 per 1,000. That's 6 per 1,000. 61 per 1,000 patient years. That's really high. 61 per 1,000 patient years, followed by lupus at 43 for 1,000 patient years, 31 for scleroderma, 25 for RA, 24 for uh, other forms of scleroderma, the first one being systemic sclerosis. The risk of opportunistic infections is highest in the first year. That goes to the line I've given you in the past, which is you tell your patients, these drugs that you're on for a long time, that the longer you're on them, the safer it is because all the events, the bad events happen in the first year or six months. That's what was seen with this opportunistic infection study. So I would worry about infections in general in dermatomyositis, maybe even more than lupus, and worry about the steroids you use. So I put a tweet out this week as a reminder about the risks of muscle disease with statins, that the risk of statin-induced myopathy is about 1%, and that rhabdo or necrotizing myositis are very rare uh, by comparison. We do have a, a marker for the patients who will get statin-induced necrotizing myositis. These are patients who have uh, HMGA-CoA reductase antibodies, HMGCR antibodies, which are not widely available, but can be found, especially labs in California does them. Um, and it turns out that, again, patients who have these antibodies, um, these are seen in about two or three out of every 100,000 patients treated with statins. That means you're likely to see one or two of these uh, in the next year or two or three. So consider patients who have necrotizing myositis could be due to their statin. Are there benefits to being on statins? Clearly, there are many benefits. I think before we talked about statins actually having lower rates of joint replacement surgery, this particular study uh, shows that, that patients who are on statins have an increased odds of osteoporosis if you're on high dose, but a decreased odds if you're on low dose. This particular study looked at a large cohort, looked at patients who were on low doses, less than 10 milligrams of lovastatin, pravastatin, simvastatin, et cetera, or suvastatin, and the odds ratios of developing osteoporosis was 0 0.39, 0 0.68, 0 0.7, 0 0.69. So about a 30% lower rate if you're on low-dose statins. But if you're on high dose, greater than 40 milligrams of simvastatin or greater than 20 milligrams of atorvastatin or suvastatin, your rates were over two to three-fold higher. So overall, statins can be associated with a higher risk of 
of developing um, statin-related osteoporosis, but it is dose-dependent. You should think about that. Lastly, we're going to end with a, a discussion of, oh, I got two more. One is um, the risk of joint uh, surgery in patients with psoriatic arthritis. Uh, the headline was a third of patients will need joint replacement surgery. This is a Danish study of 12,000 patients followed over time and showed that amongst psoriatic arthritis patients, the need for joint replacement was 2% at five years, was 10% at 10 years, good number to remember, 10 and 10. But by, um, what was it, 15 years, the risk is 29%. Not quite a third, almost 30%. But I just generally don't think of my psoriatic arthritis patients going to joint replacement surgery. Maybe I'm not following them long enough. Maybe this is old data. Again, it's accrued up until I think uh, 2015 or so, and maybe newer therapies might be better. But again, this is a significant risk for patients with that disease. Stress and inflammatory arthritis, you say, is there an association? You know, I used to have, I have this questionnaire. It's great. You can find it on roomnow.com as a downloadable. It's the new patient questionnaire. It's two sides. Been using it for years. It's fabulous. I used to have a question on there, do you have stress, and just left a blank. I used it for about three or four years, and everyone filled in the blank with high. Not no, not little. Everyone said high. didn't matter whether you were unemployed, a school teacher, a CEO. You know, it didn't really matter. Everybody perceives their rate of stress as being very high. There was a law, an old report, I think in seminars on arthritis and roots, isn't it, examined by sort of a review of the literature, the associations with stress, and it was kind of compelling, suggesting that there might be an association between stressful events and the onset of RA and other forms of inflammatory arthritis. Well, here comes this study, which says the same thing, and I don't know what to make of it, but it looked at the risk of stress, of inflammatory incident, inflammatory arthritis, if you had stress. They surveyed a large number of patients. They used a tool called the Perceived Stress Scale, 14, the numbers on this thing go from 0 to 56. And overall, their RA cohort had an increased rate of stress with a scale of 20.4. More importantly, they showed that for every one point increase, I guess over that 20, there was a 10% increase in the risk of inflammatory arthritis. What? Again, stress is ubiquitous. Inflammatory arthritis is not. And then even better, like vitamin D, where the associations are always there, but what does it mean and does the intervention mean anything? Could you actually lessen stress as a way of avoiding RA? If you can figure out how to do that, please email me, jackcush at roomnow.com. Our last report actually comes from MedPage Today. MedPage Today we publish a lot of their stuff. Uh, they sometimes publish our stuff. Nancy Walsh wrote a nice review of an article that appeared in Radiology that basically sheds a big spotlight on are joint injections worth the risk? Is there a downside that really should argue strongly against the use of joint injections? And I think it does make a case. Now, this is written by a bunch of radiologists who are reviewing the literature and coming up with stuff to say that, well, that, that they don't generally deal with, but it's kind of negative. Not gigantically negative, a little bit negative, but they did their own review of their single center study. And what they showed, I think they had uh, 459 uh, injections, steroid injections, done in 2018, and they found four areas of concern. One, they found evidence of accelerated osteoarthritis progression, um, like 20 cases, and most of them were hip progression, more so than knee progression, seeing 6% of the injections they did. Second, 
subchondral insufficiency fracture, very uncommon, but 0.9% or about 1% risk of a subchondral insufficiency fracture. Again, most of them in the hip as compared to the knee. Complications of osteonecrosis, again, less than 1%, 0.7%. And lastly, rapid joint destruction with bone loss seen in 0.7%. Now, these numbers may not worry you, but these are numbers that you're quoting to your patients when you do a knee injection or you send them for a radiographically guided uh, hip injection. I think it's important to consider this. We all know that sometimes these are great. You can get six months, three months of relief, but usually the numbers are one to six weeks of relief, especially if they are repeat injections. So that's for you to consider when you're using these in your patients. That's it for this week on the Room Now report. Uh, you can go to the website, click on the links that we've provided for these many articles. Make sure you tune in to what we're going to be doing at ACR. We have expanded coverage. It's going to be really exciting. Uh, we're going to highlight things in PSA and AS and RA and gout and a bunch of other things. A new format, a new look to the website. It's going to be on our all, all covered on our website. A lot of video, a lot of one-liner tweets. I think you're going to like it. That's this year at ACR. 2019 in Atlanta. We'll see you there. If not, tune in the room now and see what we do.